Hello and welcome back to the Critical Care Podcast, Building the Right Foundation. A podcast designed for nurses and doctors early in their intensive care careers. My name is Reluca Wagner, an intensive care nurse, and I'm joined by Chris Goff, intensive care consultant. And today we will be talking about septic shock and how to manage patients in septic shock. Hello, Chris, and welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me back. Hello. Would you mind introducing our patient today, Chris? So our scenario today is a 62-year-old male who's been brought into the emergency department by the paramedics. He was found at home by his daughter, collapsed in the lounge and confused. His first set of observations were that he was saturating fine on two litres nasal cannulae with SATs of 96%. And his blood pressure was 95 over 40 and his GCS was 13 losing one point for voice, he was confused, and one point for the motor score. He had a temperature of 36 degrees centigrade. The paramedic stabilised him and brought him to the emergency department, where he was diagnosed with urosepsis. He's been given one and a half litres in intermittent fluid boluses, and he's been started on broad-spectrum antibiotics. His blood pressure remains low, and he has a past medical history of hypertension. I'm the doctor who's assessing him, and I've decided that he needs admission to intensive care. So, Reluca, let's say I've seen this chap in the emergency department and I ring you up and uh, tell you we need to admit him to intensive care and that he's uh, got septic shock. What would that mean to you? What does sort of shock and septic shock mean? Shock to me, really, simply put, means an inadequate tissue perfusion for various reasons. It can be because there is tissue hypoxia due to reduced oxygen delivery or increased oxygen consumption, or inadequate oxygen utilisation. Whichever the reason, to me, shock means a state of inadequate tissue perfusion. Broadly speaking, I've taken your your saying, broadly speaking, there is a classification that really helps me understand shock, and that classifies shock under hypovolemic, cardiogenic, distributive, and obstructive with some really big names in each category, if that makes sense. So in the hypovolemic, we've got those patients with hemorrhage, with dehydration, and with maldistributions, so those patients with burns. In the cardiogenic, we've got patients that present with myocardial infarction, cardiomyopathy, or sustained arrhythmias. In the distributive one, which is characterized by vasodilation, or really blood in the wrong places. We've got anaphylaxis, sepsis, and neurogenic. And lastly, the distributive one, where we've got this physical obstruction to blood flow or pumping. We've got the pulmonary embolism, the cardiac tamponade, and the aortic stenosis. Again, this is a a broad explanation, and it helped me really understand the different types of shock. But I would presume, by looking at you, Chris, that in practice, it's not that straightforward. So how do you make the difference in practice? When are things ever that straightforward in practice, Reluca? I think shock is, you know, the issue in a lot of shock states is not getting um, the oxygen not being utilised in the tissues. But sometimes that's quite hard to to sort of pin down and get a, get a feel on. So one of the sort of accepted definitions of shock as well is basically if you're hypotensive, so if your systolic is less than 90. So we also count that. As, as being in shock, as usually if your blood pressure is below that, you're probably not getting the oxygen delivered to the tissue sufficiently. In terms of the different types of shock, you know, I'm not sure how helpful those, those differences really are. I mean, 
they can be helpful for you, for you to really get your head around the idea of what's happening in each of those conditions. But really getting down to what is the underlying problem is helpful as well. So you, you get to treat the underlying problem. But but I think, you know, dividing up certainly between cardiogenic, hypovolemic should be hopefully fairly obvious, distributive, obstructive, useful in a way, but actually if, if a patient's got a huge PE that's causing them to be shocked, if I come up to you and tell you that they've, oh, this patient's got obstructive shock, do you go, oh, well, that's um, really interesting. Or would it be better if I said, well, this patient's got a huge PE that's making them shocked? You know, but I don't find necessarily putting the label to it that helpful. It does make make sense because you go to the root of what the problem, basically. But saying that, I've got this lovely book, a small book that I keep with me. So if you would come to me and say, this is an obstructive shock, I'll probably take my book out on the unit and see what that is. And I've also got a little bit about management. So I guess my question to you, Chris, is do you manage the patients differently depending on the type of shock they fall under? So say, would you, I, I feel it's a bit of a, of a silly question, but. Well, I, I think you do. I think that the management is different. I mean, I, I would go back slightly and say, well, you know, when was the last time you heard of anybody in septic shock being described as being in distributive shock? Uh, probably not very often. But taking that aside, the obstructive types of shock Actually, you need to treat them by unblocking the obstruction, whatever that is. So if they've got a huge PE, then you need to try and break down the PE. If they've got a cardiac tamponade, you need to drain the tamponade. So that's helpful because it helps focus your mind onto what you need to do. If it's hypovolemic shock, then that's, again, you, you just need to treat the hypovolemia. So if they've lost a load of blood, give them blood. If they're profoundly dehydrated, give them some fluid. If they've got profound burns, give them some fluid. So you need to to treat that. The more complicated ones are in the in the distributive area because that suggests that they've got the right sort of volume, but it's in the wrong places, be that an anaphylaxis or be that a, a septic shock, in which case really you're, the, the key bits of treatment are treating the underlying cause. And some of those, you know, anaphylaxis and septic have their own specific parts of treatment as well. The, the key difference, I think, would be with those in cardiogenic shock because that is really all about the pump not pumping well enough. And then you have to have a look really about how you can improve the pump pumping, be it by unclogging a, a blocked coronary artery in the case of a myocardial infarction. Or are there drugs that we can use to help improve the beating of the heart, be it getting it to beat more strongly or beat a little bit faster? And we can talk about that a little bit more later on when we're talking about the different medications that we can use that act on the, the heart and the blood vessels. So I think in, in summary, do the different categories help us? Broadly, yes. Do I go along saying that this patient has got distributive shock? No, I think it's more helpful to say this patient is in septic shock or in anaphylactic shock. I think getting down to the diagnosis actually will help you with the treatment as well. And I think it will. you are absolutely right. It will help me as a nurse to to think ahead and to know how to prepare because it's a very different, especially with the distributive one. It's it's so different saying that it's a septic or saying that it's a um, anaphylaxis shock. The treatments are so different. So you're absolutely right. Perhaps I'm too um, too hung up on uh, on the definitions and the the textbooks. Yeah, the, the ones I think are helpful are I think cardiogenic shock. It immediately makes you think there's a problem with the heart. 
hypovolemic shock, it basically tells you that they're too empty and you need to give them stuff. I can't think of any any time I've heard this patient's in obstructive shock. Because the next question is, well, why are they in obstructive shock? Oh, well, they've got a huge PE or they've got cardiac tamponade. Why didn't you just tell me that in the first place? Why did you add this extra step in? And as you've said, for the distributive, it actually completely changes your management. So I don't find that a very helpful term, if I'm honest. Okay, that is very fair. <laughs> Let's say I've not been so unfair with you, Reluca. I've told you that I'm bringing this patient round with um, septic shock or distributive shock caused by sepsis. What things would you want to get ready in the bed space? What does that sort of make you think you want to prepare? So I would assume I only have a very limited time and uh, as much information as, as we can, but I know he's in septic shock. So I would probably get some fluids ready and giving sets, make sure that I've got those at the bedside. I would probably make sure that I've got everything you need to insert a uh, arterial line if you didn't have time to do that in uh, the emergency department. So we can really look at that blood pressure. Um, but I guess the rest in terms of medication, I would probably wait until, unless you told me anything specific, I'll probably wait until you come round and get most of those things ready then. Because most of the medication that we use to support, for example, blood pressure are not controlled drugs, so are easily available. It doesn't take me as long as it would for to take any controlled drug medication out. So basically, IV sets, giving sets, some fluids, perhaps some medication at the bedside, but most importantly, to have kit to insert an art line if you haven't done that already. Does that sound reasonable? I would completely agree. I think arterial line, I'd also possibly get the central line kit ready because one of the next steps could be putting this patient onto inotropes or vasopressors, which would need a central line. Not just continuous blood pressure monitoring, but also blood gas monitoring. Keeping on this patient's lactate and other gas parameters would be would be very helpful. I just wanted to know a little bit more about sepsis. And it's interesting because in the scenario, the patient is diagnosed with urosepsis as well. So would you tell me a little bit more about sepsis and uh, the general of sepsis, the big, big campaign, isn't it, that there's a lot of awareness or raising awareness about sepsis nowadays. Where do we stand with that at this point, Chris? I think a lot of work has gone into the management of sepsis in, in recent years, quite rightly, because sepsis basically is a, is a potentially life-threatening condition triggered by infection. Um, it kills tens of thousands of people a year in the UK alone. And sometimes it can be really hard to spot. But if you do spot it, then treatment early can be really successful. And in that sort of basis, we've we've talked about this sepsis six for quite a few years, although that concept may not be familiar with people new to, to sepsis or, or septic shock. But the sepsis six came about through the surviving sepsis campaign which has been about for quite a few years now but basically recognized that if we did certain things early in the management of people with sepsis and septic shock they would have better outcomes now it's sometimes hard to tease out exactly which part of that treatment is having the benefit when you give it as a bundle but what we have worked out is that by doing a, a number of interventions people will have better outcomes. And in fact, the sepsis six is now used in countries throughout the world. And it really just helps everybody be on the same page with how to do the early management of these patients, because it is the early management that makes the difference to them.
Now, that's not to say that what we do later on in intensive care isn't important as well, but by getting things right early on and treating them aggressively early on, we can really transform how their chances of survival will go. The most important one, I would say, I'll I'll talk about all six, but the most important one, without a doubt, is giving them antibiotics. And you need to give them antibiotics early on. It sounds completely logical that if you give them antibiotics quickly, the antibiotics will get to work faster and their patients will do better. And funnily enough, if you give antibiotics later and later, the patients will do worse. Now, that seems completely obvious, right? But it's not just giving it quickly. It's giving all of this, all of these things within the first hour of diagnosing them with sepsis. And that really just helps to focus the mind on how important it is. Previously, it was, um, you know, these are all recommendations, but previously that time pressure wasn't put on it. And actually, it's pretty easy for things to just slide slightly. And by the time you've seen the patient, found a drug chart, prescribed it, passed the drug chart onto somebody else, they've got the drug. Oh, actually, the patient's not got a line. Oh, well, let's put a line. You can see how time can go by. But by focusing everybody's attention and effort onto the fact that these need to be given within the first hour, patients will have better outcomes. So I suppose I should talk about what the sepsis six are. Is this is this a concept that's familiar to you, Raluca, or am I talking complete gobbledygook? Actually, it is. So in university, we, we've done quite a little bit about sepsis. And I think in every single placement, I came across the sepsis six, there were posters everywhere. So I think the awareness is quite raised from, from being a student, to be perfectly honest. But it would be interesting to understand the reason why we're doing some of them. So, you know, it's easy to say to see a poster in, in the staff room or wherever, wherever we decide to put it. But actually understanding why we're doing the things we, we do will be quite interesting. So I understand the antibiotics and the need for antibiotics quite quickly. Isn't that called the golden hour? It is absolutely called the golden hour. You're absolutely right. And if I sort of bring it back to what the six are um, first, and then we can go through why we do them. So I, I like to try and keep things simple, as you know. So I split the six into take three and give three. So you take three things from the patient. You take blood cultures. Mm-hmm. You take a urine output. So you put a catheter in and measure their urine output. And you measure their lactate. We get that all the time in our blood gases. We do those for different reasons. We take the blood cultures so that we hopefully can grow or identify the bug that is causing the problem for the patient. We don't always grow it, but that is our best time and chance to grow it. And that will help us later on narrow down our antibiotics to target them more specifically to the bug that the patient has. We monitor the urine output and the lactate because they give us an idea of tissue perfusion um, and, and organ perfusion. And the lactate in particular can have an association with worse outcomes. So a higher lactate means that patient is more likely to be sick and more likely to die. And so those are people we should know about. Certainly, if you have a lactate above four, your management of them goes slightly differently. So you give them more aggressive fluid resuscitation, and that should flag as somebody who's sick. So that's the three that we take. I've got a few questions, if that's all right. So you say it about the the blood cultures, the first one. So I understand that we take blood cultures to see what the bug is, so we can actually give the antibiotics that are specific for that bug. Would that mean that I need to wait for the blood cultures to come? Because I think it takes quite a long time for those results to come back, isn't it? 
Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I wasn't very clear. So they they can maybe within twenty four hours you can get an idea of what sort of bug it might be, i.e., by its shape. But it'll be probably forty eight hours until you know what it is, and even longer until you know what its sensitivities will be to antibiotics. So you're right. You should not delay giving antibiotics to wait for the culture results to come back, and hopefully you've you've already built up an idea of what the problem with the patient is that's causing them to be sick through the history and the examination and investigations. So you should already be targeting that with your antibiotics. But this growing the bug will allow you hopefully to narrow them down even further so that they're less broad spectrum. I think that leads us quite nicely onto the three things that we give, the most important one of which is the antibiotics. You know, really reiterating that you start the antibiotics very early, as quickly as possible, but you should be reviewing the duration of those every day or so and changing them and narrowing the spectrum down when you can. So certainly all antibiotics I prescribe, I would try to have a review date of 48 hours so that they get a review, you change them if you need to, and you stop them when they are no longer of benefit to the patient. The other two things that we'd give to the patient are fluid boluses. So we should give them fluid resuscitation if they are shocked. And that is up to 30 mils per kilo of fluid. So that for a 70 kilo man, that's about two litres of fluid. Or, or a woman, in fact, is about two litres of fluid. And the other thing we should give is oxygen. The caveat with oxygen is only give oxygen if the patient is hypoxic. So we've spoken previously about target saturations for people. So if their, saturation, their oxygen saturations are below those target sats, then we should give them some supplementary oxygen. But if they are oxygenating normally, we should not give them any extra oxygen. So really it's a sepsis six, but it could be a sepsis five and a half, depending on uh, whether they get oxygen or not. Take three and give three. I'm very intrigued by the fluids and how much is too much. That's one of the of the things that we sort of always highlight when we say this patient, you know, the blood pressure is dropping. What are we doing? Shall we just give a fluid bolus or they've got fluids running already? How do we know how much is too much? Is there any um, black and white information on that so it can keep me happy? Yes, sometimes it's very hard to tell. So, so you want to give the patients enough fluid, but not too much. Now, how can we tell whether they've got enough fluid or whether they've got too much? Well, it's not always easy, particularly early on in septic shock, where their peripheries may be quite vasodilated. So they may be quite warm peripherally. So there are a couple of things we can do that can help guide us. Firstly, is seeing what their response is if you give them a fluid bolus. Well, even looking at the blood pressure is not a great marker, but if you look at the blood pressure and it comes up when you give them a fluid bolus, and maybe it stays up for 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, and then gradually comes down, maybe that suggests that they are fluid responsive. There are also on the arterial line, assuming that they've got one in, and assuming that they are ventilated, you can look at things like the swing on the arterial line, which is really sort of how much the arterial line waveform moves up and down on the screen with ventilation. And a little bit of movement up and down is normal. But if it moves up and down a lot, well, if you are hypovolemic, it will move up and down more. So that suggests that they may need fluid resuscitation. And you can also look at how things change if you do a passive leg raise. So if you tilt the bed and their, their legs are up, that's akin to giving them a fluid bolus of about 250 or 300 mils. So you can see what happens. Unfortunately, all of the markers that we have, including sort of the heart rate and the blood pressure, 
are not very good at predicting at whether a patient will be fluid responsive, which is really our question here is, you know, will our patient benefit from more fluid? And we need to look at more dynamic markers, such as putting in cardiac output monitor, um, looking at their stroke volume and cardiac output and how that changes uh, with ventilation or with a fluid bolus. Or we can do investigations such as an echocardiogram that can also give us signs that the patient may be fluid responsive. So I've sort of, by the fact that I've said we've already had to get to cardiac output monitors to get an idea of it, you probably get the impression that it can be quite complicated to know whether we've given the patient enough fluid. So in essence, do give them fluid if you think they may be hypovolemic. But in these patients, they also may have other things wrong with their heart or with their blood vessels, which we might also need to treat in order to try and help restore their cardiac output and their blood pressure. Is there central venous pressure monitoring or looking at the waveform of the central venous pressure and the number? Would that also help with assessing whether they need more fluids or whether they're fluid depleted as well? Because it's a, a sort of a static marker, a bit like the blood pressure, it, it is not as good as doing a cardiac output monitor or doing echocardiography. It may be more helpful for seeing a trend for one patient. But if you just said we've put this central line in, the central venous pressure is 5, 10, 50, 0, whatever it is, that isn't very helpful. But seeing a trend over time or in response to fluid boluses may be more useful. I think it can be an extra tool in your armory. And that's really what we like in ICU. We like to try and put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together with as much information as we can. And sometimes these patients can be really complicated to manage their fluid balance. And so having an extra tool can be helpful. So if I understand correctly, with regards to the fluid, uh, fluid side of it, it's no right or wrong answer. It is a fine balance and it is about using the tools that you have to assess how much fluid they need, how responsive they are, whether or not they need other treatment. Is that is that quite right? Is that a good summary of it? Yes, I think it can be very complicated and these patients can deteriorate very quickly. And so there may be patients who you are giving fluids to very quickly but are also increasing the inotropes and vasoactive medication at the same time. And you are trying a bit of everything to try and help improve their cardiac output and blood pressure. So talking about that, because that, that is very important and very interesting, and it's something that we do see very often in intensive cares, isn't it? The, the medication, the vasoactive medication we use. But just going a step backwards, how do you decide what treatment you choose for that particular patient what sort of markers do you take into account when you do so so i tend to or i try to tend to try and break it down into preload the contractility and the afterload so the preload in essence is the sort of venous return to the heart so roughly how filled are they are they hypovolemic or not so that's what's coming back to the heart then you have the contractility so that's really is how well the heart is beating, and also, broadly speaking, how quickly the heart is beating, or maybe it's beating too quickly, but that is all about the heart beating. And then you have the afterload, which is about how the blood vessels, how much sort of resistance is in the circuit. So are the blood vessels too tight or normal or too loose? And I sort of work my way through those in my mind as I'm treating these patients. So firstly, if you think about the preload, you're thinking about 
Have you given them enough fluid resuscitation? Are they still hypovolemic? Can I just stop you there, Chris? Because this is a bit, this is getting more complex, isn't it? We said we've got a patient that came with distributive shock, which is septic shock. And now we're talking about hypovolemic shock. So it's not quite straightforward, is it? They, it seems as though they, they sort of intertwine and their, their definitions and, and what they fall under, it's not that straightforward. Is that right? It is. It's not that straightforward at all. A patient with septic shock, in essence, their blood vessels may be dilated, which means that although they once had the right blood volume or circulating volume, it's no longer the right volume for their new dilated blood system, which has a larger capacity. So they may need further fluids. In addition, their capillaries will start to leak. So we've probably all seen in intensive care patients who have been there for a week or two who are really edematous. And that is because they've got that capillary leak. So they could be hypovolemic for those two reasons, as well as it being sort of distributive. And thirdly, patients with severe sepsis can get a septic myocarditis, so their heart can be weaker and not be beating as strongly. So they could also get cardiogenic shock. So the only one they don't get is obstructive shock. But I'm sure there'll be a reason why they could get that as well. So yeah, it's really complicated. It's, I, I wasn't expecting that because I thought, you know, the title of the, the show today is septic shock. So why are we even mentioning hypovolemic apart from just being a general? It's quite complex in practice. I find these patients some of the most complicated to manage because they can come in and they can really deteriorate very quickly. And you're not sure whether you need to give them more fluid, more vasopressor, What's going on with their heart contractility? Because that's probably the most difficult one to assess. And you, any of those three things could be going on. You know, I said ideally, you know, classically, these patients are vasodilated. Believe me, when they get sick enough, they get all end up with cold peripheries. And then you are like, do we give them more, more adrenaline or is it more fluid now? Or, oh gosh, what's going on with their heart? Actually, do we need to give them some dibutamine or something? It can get really complicated. Well, tell me all about those medications that you've just mentioned. I was starting to mention sort of the preload, contractility and afterload. And I sort of mentioned preload is we'd give them fluids. Contractility is sort of how well the heart is beating. And one of the drugs that we can help to improve the contractility of the heart is dobutamine. So if we think that the heart is not beating as strongly as it could be, and perhaps it's beating a little bit slowly as well, we could try dobutamine to see if that helps improve the contractility. And in terms of the afterload, commonly in sepsis and septic shock, the blood vessels are dilated, are too dilated. It's the some of the cytokines that are circulating around the body cause the blood vessels to dilate. And so two of the most common medications that we use, noradrenaline and vasopressin, both act on the blood vessels to constrict them. And the idea is to try and constrict them back to normal exactly how you judge when a blood vessel is perfectly constricted. I've never found out um, and it's really hard to judge, but that's the theory. While for completeness, I suppose I should talk about that very occasionally we will see patients not with septic shock, but with other conditions where the blood vessels may be too tight or their blood pressure too high, in which case we could also give drugs to relax the blood vessels, such as a GTN or sodium nitroprusside infusion. By far and away, the most common drugs that we use in intensive care are those that tighten up the blood vessels, noradrenaline and vasopressin. And sometimes if the contractility or the heartbeat of the heart is weaker, we could use dobutamine. 
and I must mention adrenaline as well, which can improve the contractility and tighten up the blood vessels a little bit at the same time. So we occasionally use that as well. Does that sort of make vague sense how they work in different parts of that sort of working through the process there? It does. And I think it's a lot clearer. When I started in intensive care, I was absolutely terrified by the ventilator, which I think everyone will be, but also by the fact that I can titrate this medication. And I'm like, how do I do that? What do I look at? You know, this is a scary medication. It's not a straightforward. It's not something that you see all the time. You know, noradrenaline, it's, it's a scary medication. But when you understand the way they work, then you're perhaps more comfortable with titrating it, not just by the number. And I guess this is my question, not just by the number, but by what it does to your patient. And by number, I mean the mean arterial pressure which usually we look at 65. Is that an exact science? <laughs> When's anything that straightforward, Luca? Um, in ITU, we can really, we can make things as complicated as we like, but we generally do target a mean arterial pressure. Now that the pressure itself doesn't necessarily mean cardiac output. And we generally want to know about the cardiac output. To keep things simple, we do generally titrate it to a mean arterial pressure. Now, exactly what mean arterial pressure we should target is one of the million dollar questions. Traditionally, we've in patients perhaps who have a history of high blood pressure, we might target a slightly higher blood pressure. But the general principle is we should be trying to keep the blood pressure normal or near normal for that patient. And so if you've got any information from when they've been into clinic or been to see their GP with perhaps what their normal blood pressure is, that's actually quite helpful. If someone's been walking around in the street with hypertension, which is poorly controlled, they will probably need a different blood pressure target than somebody who's athletic and very fit and young and got a good, uh, uh, you know, what we would consider a, a low blood pressure, perhaps. So those actually can be quite important things to tease out. But having said that, don't we target the same blood pressure for everybody, Luca? That's what I was thinking as you were talking. It's like, yeah, that would be interesting in an ideal world. But actually, I look at the 65, map of 65. For most of them, apart from patients that are more cardiac, they've got a cardiac background and perhaps it's a bit higher. But usually, I always sort of look at the 65, around 65, isn't it? And what if I told you that there's not really any evidence to support that number? And including in the cardiac patients, you know, you think a higher blood pressure may help the coronary perfusion, but we're giving blood drugs to them that will tighten the blood vessels. So are we in fact tightening those blood vessels that we're trying to get more perfusion down? It's not that simple. It doesn't seem like it. And I'm sort of getting the hint of that by, by the episode that it's not, it's not that straightforward and simple. I think the, the, gen, the general principle, uh, I think we can probably accept that a mean arterial pressure should normally be above 60. Now, should it be above 65? I don't know. Should it be above 70? Maybe in some patients. I think we can all agree it should be above 60. But I, I do think there is a lot of argument to, be, to try and find out the normal blood pressure for that patient. Often it's not that easy, at least initially when they first come in, to work out whether it's a low perfusion that's causing problems elsewhere but you later down the line, you should be able to titrate the blood pressure. And actually, if, if it's low and they've, they're awake and talking to you and they're peeing, well, that's clearly a good enough blood pressure to, for their organs to perfuse. 
But if you drop the blood pressure down, or perhaps you go from 65 map to a map of 60, and their urine output goes down and they get confused, well, obviously that's too low a blood pressure for them, so you need to bring it back up. But really, it's a question of with what blood pressure are you maintaining end organ perfusion? And funnily enough, in sepsis, which is a problem with tissue perfusion, that's really hard to tell. Just to get my head around around it, it doesn't. When the patient becomes so critically unwell that is admitted to to us, apart from the fact that we need to give the the antibiotics in a septic shock, really the management depends on where the problem is, isn't it? Uh, be it with the preload, be, be it with the contractility, be it with the afterload, and we titrate the intervention that we do based on those principles, and those will apply to different types of shock. Is that is that right? So the, the main thing, septic shock, definitely antibiotics, but let's see how we, we titrate the other interventions based on their presentation, that particular patient. For sure. I mean, the sepsis shock patients and the surviving sepsis campaign and the UK Sepsis Trust have sort of agreed a framework of management, including the, the sepsis six that we talked about. And you must give them some fluid boluses. You must give them some antibiotics. And if they remain hypotensive despite the fluid boluses, you should put them on a vasopressor infusion because that is the most likely thing in those patients in whom you have already given some fluid boluses to. So the theory is, well, hang on, we've already given them some fluid, so it's unlikely that they're still very hypovolemic. What's next? Well, next is probably to try and tighten up their blood vessels a little bit because they're probably too relaxed at the moment. And the, the sepsis campaign guidelines recommended targeting a map of 65 at that stage. But you're right. I, I think it should all be individualized to the patient, thinking through which parts of that process can be causing problems. And it also is probably worth mentioning that we should also factor in where the infection is. Broadly speaking, that doesn't change the management principles of antibiotics, measure the lactate, give them some fluids, give them oxygen if they need it. But it does help us titrate the antibiotics that they get. And it also gives us an idea of their trajectory. So the most common things we see would be pneumonias, be it community acquired, hospital acquired or ventilator associated pneumonias. But we also see a lot of line associated infections. Hopefully not that many, but it can be a common source of infection in intensive care and urine infections. Now, urine infections are both good and bad, I think. They're bad in that they can make you really sick really quickly, but they're also the type that actually will recover quite quickly. So that can, in fact, throw up other questions because perhaps you have an elderly gentleman who you wouldn't normally consider as a candidate for intensive care or unlikely to benefit from intensive care. But if he has a urine infection that's making him, putting him into septic shock, maybe you would bring him into intensive care because you know your trajectory from that is one of perhaps quite quick recovery. So I think I'm probably overcomplicating it by adding that that element in at the end there. But you've got to think about where your source of infection is, because all the other management that we've talked about is all supportive for the patient. You know, there's nothing making the patient better necessarily by giving them fluids and noradrenaline. I'm trying to stop them getting worse. The antibiotics is the only thing that's really going to treat the problem and make the patient better. So you've got to make sure that your antibiotics are targeted at the right infection based on your history, your clinical examination findings and investigations to know where that's come from. Now, usually it's quite obvious if the patients come in short of breath with a cough and a fever, it's probably the chest. 
But sometimes our patients aren't that able to tell us what's going on and it can be more complicated. But always, I suppose if there's one take home message, which I guess we'll get to shortly, is always try and think about where the source of infection is and make sure you are giving antibiotics to treat that. I had to reflect as you're talking, Chris, about the urine infections, basically. I had a patient recently that had urosepsis and it was staggering how quickly he deteriorated, how quickly he really actually needed intubation. So we had the ward rounds. He was difficult, but sort of manageable, a little bit confused, but nothing that we can really manage. About half an hour, an hour later, when I looked at the blood gas, his PO2 was so low that it was a, a decision then and there to intubate. So it was it was quite staggering how quickly that that happened and how quickly he deteriorated. To be perfectly honest, I can't remember how quickly he recovered, but I, I would take that on board that perhaps they, they do recover quite quickly. And I was surprised and interesting, actually, to hear when you talked about the candidate being a candidate for intensive care. And perhaps in uh, for a different condition, that same patient wouldn't have been a candidate for intensive care. But when we talk about conditions that we know, perhaps they get um, that managed quite mm, straightforward is not the right word, is it? They recover quicker in a way, perhaps that they, they need to be considered. That, that was an interesting aspect for me. Yeah, well, I think I think we should always be mindful of the burden that intensive care can can be to pay patients and different conditions come with sort of different burdens associated with them. So you need to, you know, if someone comes with respiratory failure after two weeks already in hospital with a pneumonia, well, you know, they're going to be ventilated for a period of time and that comes with particular problems. If someone needs noradrenaline for a couple of days with urosepsis, because you know, it's going to get better reasonably quickly, hopefully, then that is very different. It's a controversial topic as well. But it is one that, you know, all of the things that we do to patients in intensive care come with risks and a downsides to them. And what are you trying to achieve by bringing them to intensive care? Now, if you, you think you have a chance of getting them back to the form, them, their former selves and getting them home again, then you should probably subject them to things that are painful and discomforting and, you know, not dignified to do that if they are in agreement. But there are sometimes patients who we know that their underlying condition is one that means they're very unlikely to ever get back to that stage. And that perhaps isn't consistent with their wishes. Some people are quite happy with the prospect that they could be bed bound and in a nursing home. And other people, that's a, a prospect that's worse than death. And we should be open to the fact that different people have different beliefs and different wishes. And we should not subject people to things that are unlikely to get them back to a quality of life that they would be happy with. You know, and that is all about talking to the patient and their family and explaining what intensive care is. And a lot of people have never heard or thought of intensive care before and don't know what we can or can't do for patients. Um, and we do do a lot of things to patients that are painful and degrading, you know, putting in a flexi seal putting in a catheter, having lines put in, being intubated, being sedated, being as you're waking up, being held down, perhaps because you're confused or agitated. Those are all things that you wouldn't opt to have if you were well. And so what 
what are the chances of getting that patient back? What are the is the quality of life likely to be like when they recover? Sometimes predicting those things at the start is very difficult. But if you know that that is a possibility that you're going to be leaving them a lot worse and that isn't what they would want, then you'd really need to be thinking really hard about what you're actually achieving. And I know we have digressed a little bit, but I think that's a very important thought and and something for us for us to consider both as nurses and doctors by working in intensive care and what we do and the reasons of you know subjecting patients to to the treatment that that we've got available so thank you for bringing that up that was that's very useful now i guess we've um sorted uh, our patients vincent isn't it we sorted vincent's treatment he is quite a strong man he's recovering quite nicely He's following a really nice pathway. He's um, he's off the noradrenaline and we're going to discharge him to the ward and then hopefully he will go home. <laughs> we're having a great run with successes in these podcasts. We are indeed. I think every single episode so far, it's, uh, it's been, well, saying that the first episode he did get intubated after which he got better. So a bit, a bit of a balance there, a bit of a balance. With regards to that, would you would you mind, Chris, just summarising today's episode and and what we've touched on for us? Is that all right? For sure. So we've admitted a gentleman who's got urosepsis, and we've talked about the different types of shock, be it hypovolemic, obstructive, distributive, and oh my gosh, I've just forgotten the fourth one. I've got complete mind blank. Help me out, Raluku. Cardiogenic one. It's like my favourite one as well. Cardiogenic. I don't know how I forgot that. I do apologise. And cardiogenic. And we did also talk about how sometimes those titles are not all that helpful. We talked about the things that we'd prepare in our bed space for admitting the patient, including, you know, I, I think the most important perhaps are the central line and arterial line kits, as well as having fluids immediately available to administer to this patient. We talked about the most important thing in the early management of this patient about the sepsis six, the give three and take three, taking the blood cultures, lactate and the urine and giving timely antibiotics, giving fluid resuscitation and giving oxygen only if the patient is hypoxic. We talked about the how we can think about patients in shock and we mentioned the preload, the contractility and the afterload and how different things that we do in intensive care can act in different parts of that pathway. Most commonly in sepsis and septic shock, we would be looking at the drugs that act on the blood vessels, particularly noradrenaline and vasopressin, which can tighten those blood vessels up, which can be dilated through the septic shock. And that, I think, is a summary of what we've talked about. It is a very nice summary as well. Thank you very much for that. And just to put you on the spot again, what would be your your three takeaway messages from this episode? I think what well, we didn't even really talk about it, but I would say have a low threshold for considering sepsis and septic shock in patients. We've talked we did talk about how it kills an awful lot of people, but it is potentially treatable. And so having a low threshold for thinking that's wrong with your patient, could this be sepsis, even in ICU? You know, have they got fevers? What's going on? Are they are they deteriorating? Have that as in your background of your mind. Uh, I've got to talk about the give three take three. You know that 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 sepsis six I think is a really good framework for for thinking about the early management of these patients. And we've got to be doing it quickly in that first hour. So 
take the blood cultures, keep an eye on the lactate, monitor their urine output. You've got to get the antibiotics into them quickly and you've got to give them some fluid resuscitation. And I think my third takeaway message is, is think about the different steps of how blood goes around the body. And therefore you're thinking about your preload, how fluid's coming back to the heart, your contractility and your afterload. And if you use that structure to help you, that will mean that you're thinking of all the steps that things can go wrong. And therefore you're potentially thinking about treatments for each of those steps. I find that very useful in my practice. And I would I would suggest that you consider taking that into yours. What, what are yours, your three, Raluca? Mine are slightly different. And I think there were a few uh, revelations in, uh, in, in today's episode. My first takeaway message is really the complexity of looking after a critical ill patient with septic shock. And the fact that the presentations may also fall under the hypovolemic shock and the treatment will depend on how that patient presents. So the complexity of looking after critical care ill patient with septic shock. The second one, just alluded to it, but is the fact that in a patient with septic shock, the antibiotic is the only treatment. The rest of the things that we do is to support the patient but the only treatment that we do is giving them antibiotic. Therefore, it's really important to do that in a timely manner. The third one is how you decide that a patient is a candidate for intensive care. What things you take into account when you actually admit a patient to intensive care, bearing in mind the burden of the treatments that we give in intensive care. And I think that was uh, my revelation today, how, how those decisions are made and the complexities of those decisions. So those are my three takeaway messages. Oh, they're good messages. Yeah, I mean, I'm biased, but I, my, my three were obviously best, but I think six good messages overall. With that in mind, this is the end of, uh, of today's episode where we talked about septic shock. And thank you very much for listening. And we hope to have you again in our next episode. Thank you for listening. And Thank you to Healthcare Leadership Academy and Medics Academy for supporting and sponsoring this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and don't forget to give us a like, to follow us and drop us a comment. Thank you all for listening and see you at the next episode.